Professor Allen's Comics Reading Journal for the month of May, 2022. Welcome to episode 84 of this podcast series, which means we've been doing this show for seven years now. That is a wow. And the concept of this show is to just have a brief chat about Whatever comics I've read since the last time I did one of these brief chat episodes, which should make this pretty much, in a manner of speaking, from a certain point of view, the comics I read during May. These books are listed weekly in blog posts at eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com, and I regularly repost them on my Facebook and Twitter, so you can find those. But those posts are not exactly spoilers for the podcast, since those are just lists. And here, there's a little more review, a little more discussion. But first, a little feedback. The picture I posted with the episode was Archie, with Betty on one side of him and Veronica on the other, and he has an aura of shock or confusion emanating off him, and Cyberspock commented that maybe Archie had an early form of spidey sense. That is what it looked like. And our good friend, Sir Sir Martin of Grey, co-listener of the year, wrote in and said, uh, thanks for being so regular, good professor. You always cheer up the beginning of the month. I've read a few of the books you mentioned, but often it's more fun to hear about things I've missed. I loved the first issue of Clea as Strange, especially her putting that rude Dr. Doom in his place. Mind, this is Marvel. They'll likely get married by issue four. <laughs> that would be quite a power couple. I'm just throwing that out to you. Planetary really was great all the way through, if you have access. Read the whole series, including the crossover with The Authority. Okay. You rightly praised Jose Luis Garcia Lopez in The Teen Titans but not his name. Is that even legal? <laughs> you know, some of us don't jump onto every podcast bandwagon. That's all I can say. And Mart comments that Richie Rich amazes me. Look at the Grand Comic Database and you'll find about 40 titles. I read one Richie Rich comic as a kid and that was enough. Just one gag again and again. Maybe I need to read more. Rushes to find a copy of Richie Rich Zillions Online. He has a robot maid called Irina. Why didn't you tell me he has a robot maid named Irina? I love Richie Rich. <laughs> and then Mart disagrees with me on an important point saying, I suppose Skull Kicker sound effects were mildly amusing when they first appeared but I'm so sick of them. They have no place in serious superhero funnies, but they're everywhere. I don't want to see punch when Spider-Man punches someone. I don't want to see leap when Hulk jumps over a mountain. Where's the imagination, the onomatopoeia? Heavy sigh. As I said, I've not read everything that you have, but I'm in no way surprised that Scooby-Doo team-up was your favorite read of April. Ritz Roman Aurelian. Best of most, Martin. <laughs> Thank you, Mart. I stand by Skull Kickers, although perhaps the concept 
has been taken and used since then in less creative and less funny ways. And I wish this had been an audio message. How I would have loved to hear Mart's take on the Scooby-Doo voice. Social media love for last episode came from Billy D from Magazines and Monsters, Clinton from Days of High Adventure, Karen from Between the Pages, Jeremiah, the notorious JJG, Sir Dr. Ange, Chris Lydon 7, Sir, Sir Martin of Grey, the Telltale Mind, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, the kind and lovely Sutherlands from Trekker Talk and other terrific shows, Chris from Professor Frenzy, my comic book collection, Pat from the Longbox Crusade, the Terrible Hook, and the Lady Laurel from the Hunters Podcast. So now, let's move on to the books I read last month, and as I do on this show, categorize or classify those books. And first up are comics that I read specifically for podcast appearances, the homework books. And for Quarterbin 183, there was a lot of homework, because I read more than a dozen books that I picked up at Free Comic Book Day. 2000 AD, Archie, Captain Underpants, DC Dark Crisis, Doctor Who, Donald Duck, The Incall Universe, It Won't Always Be Like This, League of Super Pets, Marvel Judgment Day, Max Meow, Primos, and Red Sonja. And for 184, for June's Hashtag Adventure Comics Month episode, I read Creatures on the Loose, number 26, featuring the Lynn Carter-created character, Thungor. And comics I read to listen along with podcasts, and they're getting to be a good number of these most months because of the DC Infinite app and my love of following along with comic book podcasts when I have the chance. And for me, the app gives me more of that chance. And of course, thanks go out to all of you DC Comics-themed podcasters. So, to listen along with older episodes of Rob Meyer's Robin podcast, Everyone Loves the Drake, getting caught up with his coverage, I read Robin 21-26, through 26, all written by the excellent Chuck Dixon. Tim goes to ninja school, and things get ugly for the people running ninja school. And then we get Underworld Unleashed, which for Robin means a really souped-up killer moth. And then we get an intense Guns in Schools couple of issues. And for listening along with Laurel, a.k.a. Mountain Flower and her crew, on episodes 73 and 74 of the Hunters podcast, I read JLA Secret Files and Origins number 2, in which Huntress joins, possibly against her will, this 2002 iteration of the League, And I also read Wonder Woman 277, where she was the backup feature. And to follow along with Ross on an episode of Stop, Let's Team Up, I read Adventure Comics 300, an issue important in the publishing history of the Legion of Superheroes. And to follow along with the Batman Family Reunion podcast, I read Batman Family 5, featuring a new story starring Batgirl and Robin, and a reprint story featuring the Signal Man, a.k.a. Riddler replacement Mark II. But the highlight of this issue, no fooling, by far, 
was the debut story of one of my favorite members of the Bat family. That's right. The excellent origin story of Ace, the Bat Hound. And to listen along with Shag, I know, what was I thinking? On his JLA blah 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 show, I read the next issue of the General Glory Saga in Justice League America 47. And on the new comics that we read right off the shelves, and we do actually have one of the paper variety, you know, the ones that get a little floppy as you read them. And that is the concluding issue of the miniseries Lady Mechanica, The Monster in the Ministry of Hell, number four, from Joe Benitez through Image Comics. In this issue, we get the end of Lady M's origin story, how she escaped the Ministry of Health, and then in the current day, she receives a stunning revelation. The dark work of the Ministry is still going on, and perhaps her childhood memories of what exactly happened there weren't quite correct. A dramatic and emotional ending, and I hope that this emotional turmoil in Lady M, the shifting of her worldview, her experiences, carry forward. I I hope there are ramifications in the next storyline. And we don't have a specific when that that will be beyond coming soon, but I do look forward to The Devil Dragon of Lake Labinkir. I think the origin was an important place to go for this first series at a major publisher, but I am looking forward to a more traditionally adventurous adventure next time out. And we have four new comics from Hoopla, three of which are from Boom, which release comics, or at least some of their titles, within a week or two after the physical comes out. So for me, that is The House of Slaughter, number six, where we get the next step in the next storyline. We have a hunter dispatched to a camp off of Lake Michigan where a number of eye-related injuries are not necessarily monster-related, but these are the sort of mass events that can create monsters, which was a bit of world-building I was not expecting. And what happens next may not bode well for this hunter, I'm afraid, but we'll see. And also from the same world, Something is Killing the Children 22, which continues the story of the former official monster hunter Erica, trying her best to help a young woman who seems to have the monster hunting gift herself. But we see that the House of Cutter has tasked one of their members to hunt down Erica herself. This is a very, very good series. James Tynan IV at his best. And the latest issue of the Keanu Reeves comic, Berserker! Number eight. When last we left B, who was buried in the desert a few miles underground in a test of his powers reminiscent of nuclear bomb testing. And in the aftermath of his explosive blast of power, he disappears, perhaps disappearing into the past. These are very, very quick reads. And to be honest, I can't necessarily recommend buying them for full price. But that is what makes Hoopla such a nice service. As a reminder, if you have a card at a public library, and they're not hard to get, 
And if your library is a subscriber to Hoopla, then you have access to a certain amount of digital content every month for free, which, as you know, is my favorite price point for, well, anything. So when the cost is just one of your borrows, the limit is 10 for my library, but I know it can range from 4 to 8, up to 12, 15 for the single issue or for the trade. In that context, then Berserker is a pretty fun way to pass, you know, the three and a half minutes it takes to read each issue if you go slow. And a new one from Archie, which intrigued me. You probably know Archie has done a number of strange, interesting crossovers over the years from movie monsters to rock bands. But this time they meet characters from a certain related television show. This is Archie meets Riverdale. That's right, Dilton creates a, it doesn't matter, a thing that brings over the super hot and super hunky versions of the Archie characters from the DC show into the traditional comic world of Riverdale. The key thing is that the likenesses work. The Riverdale characters are both recognizable from the show and the art is able to faithfully portray both versions, both sets of characters appropriately, and more or less has them fit pretty well into the world. In terms of the story, the plot, in a case like this, those details don't really matter. Suffice it to say that things work themselves out at the end, just like they did when the Punisher, the Predator, the Ramones, or anyone else shows up temporarily in Riverdale. And a pretty recent series from Titan that wrapped up Doctor Who Empire of the Wolf 4. We had two Doctors, two Rose Tylers, two Tardises, taking on an army of Santarans. So, kind of what you'd expect from a Doctor Who story. This was a good overall, the entire series, and the story did end in a pretty satisfactory manner. Sir Manuel of the Tidewater sent a care package with a bunch of wild books in it, including Marvel Knights Double Shot number two, with a Nick Fury story in his David Hasselhoff guys, written by Grant Morrison, involving Nick being involved in a very involved and unusual training exercise. And then the second half is a very trippy man-thing story written and drawn by Ted McKeever. In other words, totally a Marvel Knights issue. And from the 50-cent boxes at Pulp Reality, I picked up a Loot Crate exclusive version of a TV tie-in, Orphan Black Number 1. We get the dramatic beginnings of the woman seeing a version of herself right before that other version dies. And that begins a trip. To a very strange sci-fi world. Decent start. Decent comic. And I'm going to change the format for this episode just a little bit in, in recognition that many months, including this one, the seasonal reading, the monthly genre reading, takes up such a large chunk of the second half of the episode that it should just be its own second half of the episode. So I'm pulling up to here other trades and long runs and issues like that into this front half of the episode. And one actual set here is sad in a sort of way, kind of, 
seasonal or at least timely reading. After the recent passing of Neil Adams, I dug through the unread books that I had and realized that I had a bunch of books produced by his Continuity Comics line. So I read The Revengers, featuring Megalith, 1 and 2 from 1985, written and drawn by Adams. We have a mega-powered being from both science and hard work and maybe a little extra intervention of some kind. And when his family gets involved in some strange government shenanigans, he goes to war. Turns out that aliens are involved because comic books. And I actually liked the concept behind the alien invasion, which is this. Think about a piece of property that is damaged. Your automobile, for example. You file an insurance claim, and an investigator offers an evaluation of the claim. Pretty standard stuff. Except in this case, the property is Earth. The owners are the authorities of the galactic arm, and the insurance investigators who show up are the rock-like aliens who arrive during issue one. It's a unique take on the concept of alien invasion, and I kind of dug that setup. Also from continuity, I read Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future, one and two, which I picked up from a three-for-a-buck box. These are drawn and co-written by Adams, based on episodes of the animated show written by J. Michael Straczynski who did a lot of work in animation early in his career. If you're not familiar with the show, the premise is that in the year 2141, machines rule the Earth. One man stands against their leader, Lord Dread, and he is Captain Power. Fine premise, two solid stories. Neil Adams' strength was not necessarily in his scripting, we can say that. Certainly not a consistent strength of his. So adapting stories from a pre-existing property, not a bad idea at all. And from the free comic book day sale at Crazy Comics, I picked up from the Wildstorm run, Claw the Unconquered 5 and 6, which wrapped up this mini written by the excellent Chuck Dixon. The beautiful Saturina has turned on Claw, and they basically spend two issues fighting with hordes of dark demons joining in as well. Good issues, good battles, and a good ending. Not necessarily a happy ending. But from a story perspective, I think, a good ending. And an actual 150-plus page anthology from the UK in the 1990s at a bargain for 50 cents. Mindbenders, book one. I was not able to find information about this online, but the intent was for this to be a 12-book quarterly release, which is pretty bold to plan ahead three years of publication. This had eight stories, a mix of sci-fi and crime stories, each one about 20 pages, and also a nice mix of one-offs and to-be-continued. My issue with anthologies is an over-reliance on serialized stories, stories that never end. But this one does have a reasonable amount of full stories. There are enough the ends in this issue for it to work for me. And no matter what, 150 pages for 50 cents is pretty hard to beat. And here, we usually talk about all the kids' books I read from Sir Rob Lance or Pulp Reality or wherever. And 
It's not a whole lot, actually. I think the crime books in May kept me busy. So what we have here are Cheryl Blossom, 15, and Life with Archie, 148, 221, and 225. The Cheryl Blossom story was pretty funny, as it has her taking over the hosting duties of an MTV-style summer beach house show, because it was the 90s. And let me give a shout-out to Life with Archie in general. I've probably talked about this before, but this is the title that has a little more action in it. So it often features bits of Riverdale we don't always get to, situations we don't always see. And usually, each issue is based around a two-part story of a full 10 pages. So in here, we have Betty and Archie driving around the town collecting books for the bookmobile. Reggie and Archie fighting for stories and interviews on the local, not school, but local newspaper and a few business-related, at least tangentially-related, stories involving the lodges. Good issues, good change of pace. So it is time here to take a break and play a promo, and when we get back, it'll be time to get gritty, to get street, to get noirish, to get into our hashtag Crime Comics Month reading. To confront the ultimate killers, I must construct the ultimate alias. Hey, who is that lady? I think she could fly. To combat the murderers who destroy my family, crush my own life on their way to consuming everything, I must become a greater, more fearsome destroyer. Hey, man, somebody killed this lady. To track down the animals who prey on the innocent, I must stalk them first. I am no longer their quarry. I am the Huntress. New Huntress Podcast coming to you in 2019. Visit the 89blogspotcom for new episodes. Go to the Facebook page at Huntress Podcast. Go to Twitter, The Huntress Podcast. And you can always find episodes of the Huntress Podcast at RightOnNetwork.com and go to Apple iTunes where this podcast is a joint venture with the Helena Bertinelli Podcast and the Cassandra Kane Batgirl Podcast. So go to Apple Podcast, the Batgirl slash Huntress Podcast. And we're back to talk about seasonal reading, which for May means hashtag Crime Comics Month. So consider yourself fully Mirandized. So we talk about these books that I acquired from a variety of sources, which I'll do my best to identify as we go. So in approximately alphabetical order, we have... Well, you know, some months... It's tough to find appropriate books from the Archie world. And possibly crime would be the toughest, but that doesn't mean it can't be done. So I read Archie's Mysteries 25 through 29. This title carried on from Archie's Weird Mysteries, which was also a TV show. Anyway, these ones are less weird and more mysterious. As in the Archie gang... 
being trained to do forensics work by trained professional forensic folk. It's not a bad premise, Archie, as the team leader, Veronica, as the financial expert, Chuck, as the forensic artist, Dilton, as the team chemist and scientist, Betty, Jughead, Reggie, well, they do stuff too. Trust me. It's good, Archie, change of pace uh, stories. And a series translated from the French, featuring the character of Black Sad, Arctic Nation, A Red Soul, and Somewhere Within the Shadows. These are classic, gritty, noir PI stories, full of tough guys, shady shenanigans, dark shadows, cigarette smoke, lots of fights, and lots of death. With a little twist that all the characters are talking animals. Black Sad is a cat, for example, and to be fair, he's a pretty cool cat. You've got alligators, foxes, weasels, bears, and all other kinds of beasties. And it must be said that these are not cartoony, not in the least, in case that's where your mind was going. These are drawn like, again, not to be too species-centric, these are drawn like people, except that they're animals. One of these storylines involved Black Sad's former lover turning up dead. And another pretty obvious storyline in which the polar bears have teamed up with the albino animals and every other white-furred beast against all the animals with different colored fur. Overall, a very interesting and pretty solid set of gritty, noir detective stories. And from a collection of, quote, explosive pre-code crime comics, unquote, from 1954, I read Dynamite, three through six, featuring the wild man of Chicago, the one-eyed detective P.I., Johnny Dynamite. All these were drawn by, and in many cases written by, Pete Morisi. These are really quite entertaining. The details in the art are great. Every character has their own look, their own hairstyle, their own squinty eyes, their own five o'clock shadow. Really excellent stuff. And the stories are great as well. This was a complete fun discovery, a series that I had no expectations for going into. And then wrapping up a miniseries that I covered the first issue of on a recent quarter bin, I read Gordon's Law 2 through 4, written by Chuck Dixon and drawn by Klaus Jansen. You have a crime that involves possibly dirty cops, so Gordon does not want Batman's help. He wants to settle this quietly and internally. That's the setup. That's, I would say, solo Gordon story. Good stuff, lots of street-level intrigue, gangland stuff, organized crime, and its influences on the GCPD. And the one true hero of Gotham, James Gordon. You have to like Jansen's scratchy, sketchy art style to really dig this, but it works from the grime and grit that Dixon brings to the story. And that was not the only similar miniseries that DC put out in this era. They're all collected in one trade. So next up, I read Batman GCPD 1-4, through which did not actually have a lot of Gordon in it, focused more on the detective squad. So we have the partnership of Montoya and Bullock having broken up 
but of course their individual plots intertwine. We have Bullock going after a crew of high-end thieves, while Montoya is impersonating a diplomat's wife, uh, serving as a decoy. And she does that job so well that she gets kidnapped. Really solid police procedural and the creative team of Dixon, along with Apero and Sienkiewicz, is really, really strong here. That is a, a lot of creative talent. And then that trade wrapped up with an, yet another miniseries, this one written by Denny O'Neill, Gordon of Gotham, 1-4. through four. Although mostly, this is Gordon of the Chicago PD telling us the story of his early days as a cop, running afoul of his corrupt colleagues, laying the groundwork for his move to Gotham. And, well, his cleaning up of the corruption of the Gotham PD. The story is being told to Batman on a rooftop, the past laying the groundwork for a current case in Gotham. Very well-told story. Denny O'Neill really knows these characters, knows this setting. Uh, Overall, this was a very good trade collection. I believe the trade was called Gordon of Gotham. And I know that I was not the only person reading these miniseries during Crime Comics Month. Hello, Sir Luke Giaconetti. You know, crime and detective stories can run quite a gamut in terms of how intense they can be. To speak in terms of movies, these types of stories can go from G-rated to hard R. And I enjoy reading from the entire spectrum. Cozies tend to be in the G or PG realm, and then the more gritty stories can move into PG-13 or beyond territory. Noirs and pulps often fit in there as well. But the most harsh, the most gritty, even have their own genre name and publishing imprint, Hard Case Crime. Now, I don't read a ton of these, either in prose or comics, but I have read some. And this month I read from Titan Comics, Gun Honey, 1-4. through We have a female lead who is not a weapons manufacturer, not really a gun runner either, But if you need a gun smuggled into a location, a weapon stashed or hidden somewhere, you give the gun honey a call. Lots of violence, lots of sexy time and various nudity bits. And overall, a pretty solid story featuring an interesting character with a rough background operating in a very rough world. And when I picked up from a three for a dollar box a number of years ago, I read from Eclipse Comics, Will Eisner's John Law, Detective, number one. This was an Eisner character that was never published back in the day, but Cat Ironwood, Eclipse publisher, had done some work with the Eisners in the past, organizing Will's uh, records and collections, etc. And she stumbled across a file folder labeled John Law which contained these stories. The publication that would have included these stories from the late 1940s never came to be, and Eisner actually ended up using some of this material, story and art, in later spirit strips. So it's a cool historical document, as well as being solid police stories from the late 1940s. And a few I read from the public domain. I use the Digital Comics Museum website for this. And as you might expect, this is a genre 
that is all over the public domain. From there, I read Police Trap 5 and 6 and Fight Against Crime 5 and 17. Police Trap had covers by Kirby and probably one story each by the King, although some of the credits on these older books are a little hard to confirm. But in these, you got a lot of bad guys doing a lot of bad things with the additional addition of some horror or supernatural elements that was in the the Fight Against Crime book. The best story among all of these issues was the guy who married rich ladies to kill them for their money. But his latest victim is a Black Widow-style dame who kills her boyfriends. And they end up doing each other in. If you are interested in some of these older titles from the 40s and 50s, many of them are available in the public domain. There's a lot of good comic book history in there. And this would fit into crime comics, westerns, adventure comics, horror, war. There are a lot of genres that are represented quite strongly by books in the public domain. And I'm putting together a couple of uh, books here. These are Kickstarter books that uh, I got via Kirk Spencer. Short Order Crooks, number one, was the story of an organized crime ring revolving around the Portland food truck scene. And to be honest, the Portland food truck scene always struck me as a bit suspicious. And Chum, number one, which calls itself Surf Noir. Gritty crime on the beach. Good first issue. Rough, but good. And an 80 to 90 page collection of short crime stories, maybe 15 stories or so total, in the Crime Pays OGN. One of the good stories was of a crime family looking for a member of the next generation to step up and take the lead, only for it to be a different surprising member of that generation to do so. And another favorite was two thieves going after the same diamond in a story that does have a happy ending. I like that these were short stories, some as short as one page, uh, maybe up to eight or nine pages max. Really good collection. One of my favorite PI series of all time is The Maze Agency, created and written by Mike W. Barr. I love that these are fair play mysteries, meaning that the clues are there for observant readers to potentially notice. Spoilers, I hardly ever do. I have the entire run from the first volume, which bounced around among a few publishers, and I decided not to reread those ones during this month, but I did have some issues from different Uh, more recent takes. So I read Maze Agency 1 through 3 from Caliber from 1997. These are black and white issues. And two of the three are really good, especially the one where three women come forward claiming to be a former bombshell actress who has a fortune coming her way. The one that disappointed me was issue two, partly because the setting so intrigued me. It was set at an abbey with everyone needing to abide by the rule of silence for a good part of each day. But that one, it just didn't stick, uh, the ending for me, or or the, the story overall. But the other two mysteries, really, really good. 
and also Maze Agency number two from IDW from 2005. This one has corruption and attempted murder at a beauty contest. And she would have gotten away with it if she hadn't used her sash as the murder weapon. Let that be a lesson. And one of the all-time great DC Comics miniseries from Don McGregor and Gene Colan, Nathaniel Dusk, one through four. I can't remember if I got these when they were brand new coming out or picked up all four at a con shortly thereafter, but I know that I've had them for a long time and definitely have good memories of this series. And when that's the case, sometimes you get a little bit nervous, whether your nostalgia clouds your memories, you know, just or, frankly, just how much your tastes have changed over, in this case, let's just say many decades. This was a gritty noir story taking place in 1934, starring private investigator Nathaniel Dusk in the story, Lovers Die at Dusk. And it's just really good. And this is one case where I will mention the art, because the art in this is very well known because of how it was created. The art went straight from Gene Colan's pencils to coloring, so it lacks the dark black lines that you're used to, and all the backgrounds are very sketchy. But because of the content, and because of the sheer skill of Colan as an artist, it works perfectly. Completely loved it. The creative team returned a year later with Nathaniel Dusk 2, 1 through 4, the story Apple Peddlers Die at Dawn, picking up again in 1934. This one has organized crime and politics involved because those two things often go together. I like the Depression era city life portrayed here, that difficult existence between the wars. Excellent stories, distinctive art again and a really strong lead character. A pair of terrific miniseries. And one I picked up on Hoopla from Image, Postal, one through four, about the hidden secrets in a small town. Our lead character is a man with Asperger's who works as the town's mail carrier, hence the title Postal. He falls for a waitress at the local diner who it turns out, and I bet you didn't see this coming, she has a lot more going on than meets the eye. It's solid, it's dark, it's an interesting point of view. Just good comics. And this one, from Pulp Reality, which I bought a few months ago because of the name, I knew it would fit into this month. But when I opened up Private Eyes, number six from Eternity Comics, I realized that it was three months' worth of newspaper comic strips from 1955 of the daily and Sunday version of The Saint, the character created by Leslie Charteris, who appeared in novels and eventually a TV show starring future James Bond, Roger Moore. This included two complete stories, a blackmail scheme and a robbery scheme. And I gotta say, once I got into the rhythm of daily comic strips, this was a really fun read. It takes a little time to get used to that style of storytelling, especially reading so many back-to-back as one story. But the mysteries were good. Uh, The blackmail one in particular was interesting. 
So I really wasn't sure what to expect, but found this to be a good and interesting read. And then one of Ed Brubaker's early comic works, Scene of the Crime 1-4, through the story of a private detective hired to find a missing woman. He traces her to a cult-like commune, and that is just the start of the story, tracing through her family history and that of the sister who hired the detective, reveals more ugly history with a different cult-like commune. Lots and lots of dark connections are revealed, and like many noir stories, this one has a, spoilers, not-so-happy ending. Grim and gritty, and pretty darn good. Now, we mentioned before those Gotham PD stories. Talked about Batman, who of course is the world's greatest detective. But as much as I am a fan of the Dark Knight detective, I am first and foremost a fan of the original world's greatest detective. And this month, I read a bunch of stories featuring him, including Sherlock Holmes, The Vanishing Man, 1-4 through four from Dynamite, scripted by Liam Moore. In this, a man disappears, hence the title, and his spouse comes to Holmes and Watson to find him. But does she really want him found? Who was he anyway? And what role does Professor Moriarty play in the story's major subplot? Good work here, good story, good characterization. This serves as both an interesting story in and of itself and a good first arc for this run from Dynamite. And then from later in that run, from Leah Moore again with John Repion, The Trial of Sherlock Holmes 1-5. through Here's the premise. A man receives a very credible threat that he will be murdered at a specific time and place. And he calls in the London police and Sherlock Holmes to protect him. Holmes is called into his room as the time approaches, and we hear a shot. And when the police arrive, Holmes is standing over the man, freshly murdered, smoking gun in his hand. Holmes is arrested as all the evidence points his way. Watson, Mrs. Hudson, Mycroft, everyone gets involved. Solid, solid, really, really good story. And a black and white comic from Eternity Comics, Sherlock Holmes, and the case of the missing Martian 1-4, through four, written by Doug Murray, best known for his work on Marvel's war book, The Nom. Hello, Tom Panneries. This posits that the events in H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds took place. And of course, the end of that story was devised by Holmes, as it turns out. So now, decades later, the one dead tripod left on Earth afterwards, the last artifact of the War of the Worlds, well, it seems to have come back to life. It's a dramatic start of a story. And of course, you have to be willing to be okay with the addition of classic sci-fi to your hard-nosed evidence-based detective stories to like this one, but I did. And maybe the strangest one of these, Sherlock Holmes in the Case of the Vanishing Villain, by Gordon Rennie and Woodrow Phoenix from 1993. Meta-narrative and meta-textuality can really go wrong really fast. 
but I find it interesting here and a little bit different. This is a combo of Doyle, Poe, and Stevenson. As Dr. Jekyll calls on 221B because Mr. Hyde has disappeared. Which is to say, he has disappeared from the text of the Stevenson novel, and as Jekyll wandered off to look for him in the text, he ended up in Doyle's story of Holmes and Watson. The best part is that upon showing Watson a copy of a Conan Doyle collection, Watson is outraged that this man he's never heard of is stealing his stories. It's fun, it's wild, it's a very strange read. This will definitely turn some readers off who don't like self-aware characters. We've had a lot of that over the last few decades. But I enjoyed this one a pretty good amount, probably because it was Holmes. And last up, one from an Eclipse title that I read one of a year or so ago, Who Done It? Number two. The concept of this comic is interesting. It's definitely unusual. What they do is give you maybe 18 pages or so of a mystery story, ending with the detective announcing that they've solved the crime. And then you get a five or six page reveal of the answer to the mystery from last issue. And between those issues, Eclipse ran a contest inviting readers to solve the crime, answer some questions, and potentially win $1,000. Which means it's like an anthology, and you know my issues with anthologies. The problem with Who Done It is that you have to get the next issue to get the full story, to, to get the solution, to get the, the resolution. The problem with that is especially the case of issue three of this title because there never was an issue four. So each issue ends on a cliffhanger to be resolved next issue, but of course that last one just ends unresolved forever. Well, I think that was a pretty good collection of a wide variety of crime comics. And I think that's everything. In terms of my favorite reads of the month, among the crime comics, The Trial of Sherlock Holmes was great. Nathaniel Dusk is excellent. I enjoyed The Maze Agency, of course, and those James Gordon stories. And Something is Killing was solid. But in terms of my absolute favorite, yes, I am biased. But wrapping up a solid Lady M mini is hard to beat. Lady Mechanic on the Monster in the Ministry of Hell, number four my favorite comic of May. Next month, I'm not really sure what I'm going to be reading other than some adventure comics for June. Some Tarzan, Blake and Mortimer, James Bond as examples. But other than that, who knows? But whatever I do end up reading, I will be here to talk about the comics I read during June in an episode that ought to be out in early July. Feel free to let me know what you think of this episode, what you think of any of these books that I've mentioned. You can send that feedback via email, relativelygeeky at gmail.com, or as a comment on the Facebook or blog post for the episode, the blog is at 
relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. You can follow the network on Twitter at relatively underscore geek. And, of course, the network has its own page on Facebook as well. Come join us. All are welcome. Thanks for listening, and keep the pages turning.